One of my favorite moments when I go to a sporting event, for instance, consider if you've gone to a Colts game, the singing of the national anthem at sort of the pinnacle moment. I remember the first time I ever saw this happen. I remember looking out over Lucas Oil Stadium and thinking, there's a massive bird flying and someone had released an eagle. And sort of the pinnacle moment of the singing of the national anthem, here's this beautiful eagle that's soaring around Lucas Oil Stadium. How many of you have ever seen that moment? Or maybe you go to the Indy 500 and at the pinnacle of the, again, national anthem, some fighter jets fly over top. In fact, our church happens to be the turn for that. So around Memorial Day weekend, you'll see a fighter jet turn over here as it makes its way over to Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Or consider a wedding, one of my favorite moments that just sort of represents the significance of the celebration is when the music stops, the mother of the bride, she remembers to stand, so she stands, turns, and everybody else stands, and you watch the bride come down the aisle. Or consider when the bride and groom leave, and everyone gathers in this sort of celebratory gauntlet, and they, they walk down the gauntlet, and to celebrate their newfound relationship, we, we throw things at them, or like rice or, or bubbles. All of those little pictures, they capture a signature moment with some sort of symbol. If you were a Jew and you lived in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high holiday in the redemptive calendar of God's people, somewhere between mid-September and mid-October, there was a moment that would have taken your breath away. The priest would wear all white, different clothing than he wore all year. He would sacrifice a bull for his own sins, go into the holy place, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and then come out, and in front of all the people would have two goats that were gathered. He would cast lots. One goat would be sacrificed, he would take the blood and then go back into the holy place and again, sprinkle the blood on that altar as atonement for the people's sins. But then the second moment happens where he comes out into the courtyard and over the second goat, he would place his hand and confess the sins of God's people. After confessing the sins of God's people, somebody would come and take the goat and would walk the goat out of the temple courtyard, out of the uh, sanctuary, out of the, ex the outside of the city, and release the goat out into the wilderness. And as the people of God considered that their sins were forgiven, on the head of this goat were laid the sins of God's people, and that goat, as it left the city, was a marker that that goat is removing our sins and our sins are gone. That goat is a scapegoat. A scapegoat. In our culture, in our world, that term is not a positive term. To be a scapegoat means that you receive blame that somebody else deserves. And yet in the Old Testament, the concept of the scapegoat was celebrated. 
And this idea of the transfer of guilt became central to the identity of God's people, such that God's people were marked and defined by redemption. They were delivered from judgment by sacrifice, and they were set free by the transfer of guilt onto something other than them as they watched their sins being taken away. This theme of deliverance through sacrifice, this theme of deliverance by the transference of guilt not only defined the Day of Atonement and defined their worship, this is really, really important, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, this deliverance through sacrifice was their identity. They were a people whose sins had been taken away. So that scapegoat not just, didn't just represent a moment on the Day of Atonement, it defined the very essence of what it meant to be the people of God. The challenge was that often, the people of God didn't understand all the implications of that reality. We come to Isaiah 52 and 53 and we see the underpinnings of this scapegoat, guilt transference, salvation through sacrifice. It emerges, but it's written to a people who are considering an exile. People who feel like they're on the outside. People who feel like they've been marginalized. And looking back through the lens of the New Testament, we can see clearly that Isaiah is talking about none other than Jesus. But at the time when these words were written, this was mind-blowing. It was category-shifting. It was paradigm-breaking. That this was the hope of God's people, not just in terms of how their sins were forgiven, but even how they make it through hardship and difficulty. So this text today highlights two particular foundational truths related to deliverance and the deliverer. So deliverance and the deliverer. Deliverance, what does it mean to live with expectant hope? Or how does the concept of escape go? How does the transfer of, of judgment and blame give you hope when life is uncertain or when it's hard? And then what does this text tell us about the deliverer, this one who Isaiah promises would come, this suffering servant who then did come? His name is Jesus. So first, this concept of deliverance. Isaiah returns here to this theme that's run all the way through chapters 40 through, and we'll see 55, this idea of bringing comfort to God's people. Isaiah has in mind a time, the Babylonian exile, when the people of God will wrestle with tough, difficult, exhausting, and troubling tensions. So if you've come to church today and you find yourself overwhelmed with difficulties, find yourself 
wrestling with troubles such that you are battling unbelief in a unique way, if you find yourself unusually struggling with fear, how does the Bible speak into those moments? Isaiah 52 and 53 are written for that kind of reality. Chapter 52 begins, two words repeated, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there is no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. So he calls on the people of God to wake up. He's inviting them, listen, to a spiritual recalibration, which is why he says that they are to put on strength and to put on beautiful garments. It's why he says they're to shake themselves from the dust and be seated. This is an invitation for them to be reminded who they are, even though the circumstances of life are deeply discouraging. He reminds them who they really are, even though the hardship of their life feels exhausting. Anyone need that word today? Find yourself discouraged? Anyone weary? Anyone depressed? Anyone anxious? Anyone disheartened? If you're a Christian, this text is designed to help you to think about bigger realities, more encouraging realities than the circumstances that have occupied your attention this last week. The purpose of this text is to remind you who you really are. Isaiah says, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, this text will point you to the source of strength that comes with a personal relationship with Jesus. This relationship, as we'll see in a few moments, that helps you when you're in trouble when you're in hardship, when you're in difficulty. Now what's fascinating is that this text roots this sense of identity and encouragement in who God is and in terms of what he has done. Look at verse three. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you, were, you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. So that's the situation, and to that, God says this. Look at verse six. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. But notice the message. Who says to Zion, here's the message. Your God reigns. The beautiful moment on the Day of Atonement when the scapegoat left the gates of the city and went out into the wilderness was not just that their sins had been atoned for, but it was that God had granted them forgiveness. The text puts this theme 
and the voice of a watchman. Look at verse eight, the voice of your watchman. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for I to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. They, they, they're, they're looking for deliverance from the God who reigns. And then verse nine, I love this. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, for he has redeemed Jerusalem. Notice what Isaiah is saying here. He's inviting the waste places of Jerusalem to sing because the Lord has brought comfort to his people. Do you have any waste places in your life? Any seasons of life that you look at or maybe you're in one of those right now, the kind of season where you would say, I don't know what in the world is going on and how there's gonna come any good from this. You have something in your life that's so discouraging that if somebody even brings up the subject, you're just like, look, I can't even. It feels like a dump. Like I'm emotionally exhausted. The beautiful message of Isaiah is that God is in the business of making dumps sing. God is in the business of making that which seems to be a waste to be full of mercy and grace. Just a reminder that in Lamentations 3, when the prophet Jeremiah said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end, he didn't just ponder that truth, he proclaimed it over the destruction of Jerusalem. So he says that over what looks like a disaster, and he says, no, 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 this looks bad, but here's what I know, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. One of the songs that we sing on occasion has words that go like this, he turns graves into gardens, bones into armies, seas into highways, he's the only one who can. Wanna hear that again? He turns graves into gardens. God's people say amen. He turns bones into armies. God's people say amen. He turns seas into highways. God's people say amen. He's the only one who can. So if before you is a sea, if you look around and all it is is bones, and you feel like you're living in a graveyard, just know he's the only one who can. Look at verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm. God rolled up his sleeves and you saw his biceps. Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from here. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And then notice verse 12. You shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. Notice that the people are invited to look for a day when they will be delivered, and they won't run, they'll walk. Dignity, strength, confidence. When I was 
reading this text, I was thinking of a moment when I was in high school. I went to the Michigan State High School Basketball Championships in Ann Arbor, and there was a team that was, at the time, just dominated um, high school basketball called Cooley. I'll never forget the warm-ups. One team was warming up on one side of the uh, court, and the team from Cooley came out. And you know, usually when a team comes out, they, they come blasting out of their tunnel, right? And they run really fast around, and they amp everything up. Mm-mm, not Cooley. Cooley walked out. And they walked out, and they said, C-O-O-L-E-Y, Cooley, 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 and they walked around the other team. <laughs> It was, I wasn't playing and I was like, whoa, that's intimidating. (laughs) And that was the point. We're not going to run out, we're going to walk out. And the idea is that God gives his people not arrogant or self-assuring hope. He gives them confidence because he's the only God who can. Some of you have forgotten this week that God is your deliverer. I mean, you know it, but you're in a situation, you're in a dynamic, and you're looking at it, and you're like, there's just, there's nothing that I can do. And the Bible would say to you, brother or sister, newsflash, there was nothing you could have done before. To wake up as a Christian means that you understand who you are in Christ, and it is to live emotionally in light of that really being true. This text reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 8, 35 and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now when I read that verse, my eye goes to the word conqueror. I love that word. We are more than conqueror. My heart wants to say, yes, But here's where I went in Isaiah 52 and 53 to the phrase, in all these things. To be a conqueror in Jesus' name doesn't just mean that you get through the trial, but it means in the middle of it, you're a conqueror while you're still sitting in it. You're able to have faith and confidence while you're still in the grave waiting for the garden. You're confident in God's ability to help you when you're in all these things. So listen, in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword, in all of those things, you are more than conquerors. Some of you think that conquering means the trial gets over. No, this text means that in the middle of the, of the difficulty, you're still a conqueror because God helps you. So Isaiah offers this kind of hope to God's people for deliverance, this expectant hope, kind of a hope reset. But then what happens is that all of this hope comes through a person, this deliverer who is a suffering servant. What follows from chapter 52 Verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12, is an incredible text that demonstrates the characteristics of the deliverer. And what's remarkable is that for those who are suffering, Jesus delivers them through his suffering. 
There's this statement in verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That seems to fit with the tone of what we heard from chapter 52 all the way to verse 12. It's exultant. It's exuberant. God's going to be with us. He's going to help us. He's going to deliver us. We're going to walk out. We're not going to run out. Like We're going we're gonna to be able to make it. And this is an unbelievable promise. But what's very, very interesting and mind-blowing is the means by which that is accomplished is the suffering of the deliverer. That doesn't fit with the way humans think. What we have here are seven characteristics of this suffering servant, seven of them. The first So here's the deliverer. Here's the one who's gonna help you to walk out. Here's the one that's gonna be your rear guard. Here's the one who's going to provide everything that you need. Characteristic number one, he was appalling. Appalling. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The word astonished means to be dreadful or appalled. The idea is that his appearance is so disfigured that people might wonder if he's even human. So from the outset, this is a deliverer who rescues God's people in a way that just doesn't doesn't fit with how humans think about a deliverer. Deliverers are strong and powerful They're attractive, they have an aura, they have an essence. But not this one. He's gonna be victorious, look at verse 15, shows us this very clearly. He's going to sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told they shall see and that which they have not heard they shall understand. So this deliverer is going to provide cleansing and he's gonna provide atonement at a scale that doesn't fit with what human beings can possibly imagine. And what's more, it's not going to fit with how they would think deliverance would come. The plan of the rescue of mankind is not how human beings would have done it. And that's the point. He was appalling. Secondly, he was unimpressive. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had, notice this, no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was unimpressive. Isaiah talks now here not just about his physical malformation, like is he even human, but from a position of being shockingly unassuming. He's described as a young plant, a root out of dry ground with no form, no majesty, or no beauty. He's not impressive. What's more, not only is he appalling and unimpressive, he also was rejected. The servant isn't going to be popular. He is despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Isaiah 53 verse 3 describes him as somebody who is rejected, somebody who's not received, somebody who's not wanted. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. This is the the singular characteristic that we see over and over of this servant. He's a man upon whom sorrow comes. He bears the griefs. He bears the sorrows of others. What's more, people believe him to be smitten by God and afflicted. He seems to be rejected by men and by God. Skip ahead now to verse seven. We'll come back to these other verses. They flip back from blessing and affliction. We come now to number four in verse seven where we see clearly he's oppressed. He was afflicted. So this is the servant who was appalling. He's unimpressive. He's rejected, and now he's afflicted. The servant suffers deeply. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We find that the characteristic of this servant is that he is oppressed, and yet he does it willingly and without any kind of protest. Number five, he's treated unjustly. All of this suffering took place even though he was innocent. Look at verse nine. They made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So here is one who suffers, but he suffers willingly and suffers on purpose. So let's just pause here. Because when you put all of this together, at least these first five characteristics, we'll come to two more in a moment, this is not a picture of natural human strength. Human beings tend to value leaders and rescuers and heroes who are attractive, popular, impressive, successful, victorious by the very essence of what makes us human. We're impressed with beauty, with fame, with wealth and acclaim. And yet central to deliverance and central to what makes Christianity full of grace is redemption through a completely different means. And at the very foundation of what Christianity is all about is a complete inversion about how we think and how we operate. And friends, this is one of the reasons that it's a miracle that anyone comes to faith in Jesus. For those of you who are Christians, you remember the time that you heard the gospel and the light bulb went on and you were like, I'm a sinner and I can put my trust in Christ, that this person who died on, the, on a cross was the son of God and his atonement can be applied to me. Do you know that that thought is an absolute miracle of God? It's why Jesus said to Nicodemus that one must be born again. So if you're a Christian, when you came to faith in Christ, listen to me, God invaded your heart. You saw something you would have never seen if God hadn't set his love on you. Because there is nothing about the suffering servant that humanly makes sense that, oh, this is the way that I'm delivered. It's why Paul says that faith is a gift from God. It's why 
Paul says that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That an appalling, unimpressive, rejected, afflicted, unjustly treated deliverer just doesn't make any sense. Unless God, by his spirit, helps you to understand the value of atonement and how beautiful a scapegoat really is. If you understand that your greatest need for deliverance is not circumstantial or from an earthly exile, but rather from your internal guilt, suddenly this suffering servant motif starts to make sense. So he's all of these things, he's appalling, unoppressive, rejected, afflicted, unjustly treated, why? Because he's also gracious. Here's the crazy thing. Look at verse five and six. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's, that's too impersonal. Let me insert my name, and you put your name in. He was pierced for Mark's transgressions. He was crushed for Mark's iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought Mark peace, and with his wounds, Mark was healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Mark turned to his own way, and yet the Lord laid on him Mark's iniquity. That becomes the defining reality of who a person is in Christ. That he was pierced, he was crushed, his chastisement created peace for us. He was wounded. When we went astray, he bore our iniquity, and it is the servant who provides atonement through personal sacrifice and suffering, such that then the result is finally is that he is victorious. Look at verses 10 through 13. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes transgressions or makes intercession, rather, for the transgressors. So what's happening here is that Isaiah is putting together a picture of the kind of deliverance that God's people really need and the one who will bring it. During Isaiah's day, they had no idea of what they were reading or fully what it would mean, but the New Testament writers, they absolutely did, which is why Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book, because the suffering servant became the model that Jesus fulfilled. In other words, Jesus became our sacrificial lamb. He was the scapegoat upon which our sins were laid and it was the means by which God rescued his people, and it was the hope that God gave his people as they waited in exile. So what do we do with this? There's been a lot to consider. It's a complicated, intense text. Let me give you four applications 
of how to think about this passage. I trust that you've been doing that as we've been walking through this passage, but let me bring these points to the forefront so that they're very clear. First, when you read Isaiah 52 and 53, you ought to be able to ponder the amazing nature of grace. If you're a Christian, can you just allow this text to stun you again about the incredible kindness and mercy applied to you through Jesus? His entry into the world, his life, his suffering, his death are all reminders of how far Jesus would go to rescue wicked sinners. Number two, embrace the inverted values of God's kingdom. We see once again how upside down the values of God's kingdom really are. A suffering savior provides atonement for all who would trust him. He dies alone. He's humbled. He's merciful. He's gracious. And that plan of humble, merciful, gracious conduct is the means by which Jesus bought you and it is the life to which Jesus calls you. So when it feels like humility's not gonna work or mercy's gonna be taken advantage of or grace is gonna be all consumed, can I just remind you, oh Christian, humility, mercy, and grace are the means by which you are in this very room in this moment. Embrace the inverted values of God's kingdom. Third, understand the redemptive purpose of suffering. Listen, we live in a broken world and God's mission involves suffering and hardship. So we ought not be surprised when hardship comes. Some of us could be really helped if we could just get over that life's gonna be hard at times. Just can't believe, life is hard. Yeah, life is hard. We live in a sinful, broken world. And the hope for the Christian is not the absence of suffering, but the transformation of suffering. In all of these things, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. So don't be surprised when hardship comes. Don't be angry when hardship comes. Don't give up when hardship comes. Remember, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And finally, when it feels as though the oppressive weight of our culture and society or just the brokenness of the world or hardship or suffering makes us feel like outsiders. The whole reason that this text is in the Bible is so that we will learn to live in exile by looking for our soon coming king. Remember, these chapters are written in order to encourage people as they consider their exile, as they think about what it means to have hardship or difficulty. Isaiah points them back to the suffering servant calls them to understand something beyond their present circumstances. And that is to be reminded that the way that God works is by the application of grace 
and mercy through a suffering servant. That's the way he redeems. That's the way he rescues. That's the way that we win. And this servant then becomes the model of how we endure. Knowing that our sins are taken away makes us a different kind of people, a people who can be free. Lord Jesus, we so desperately need to have a recalibration of our minds and hearts today, to be cognizant of what it is that defines us, to be reminded that you're going to be with us, you're going to help us, that this suffering servant was the means by which our atonement was purchased. And so we, we pray right now that you would recenter us on what's really important, what really matters, and the things that can serve to transform our lives. Lord, some of us have spent so much time thinking about all kinds of other things that we think are going to give us control and we're thankful that we can just rest knowing that you turn graves into gardens, bones into armies, that you're the only one who can. So come right now, Lord, and help us because we need it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.